You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 114 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Oh, Valerie, I'm cold. <laughs> oh, it is cold, isn't it's it? Cold. Very cold. In Actually, I'm not too bad, though. I've got, the, I've got the heater on, everyone. You'll be very excited to hear that's how cold it is. Hooray. Um, I know, uh, but Procrastine Pop and I have been out for a walk this morning, a very bracing walk mm. in about 50, I had 15 layers on. And um, so I'm actually feeling pretty good. I have to say that um, like if, if I didn't have a dog, mm. I wouldn't have put my nose outside the door this morning. So I think that it's a good thing I have a dog. Otherwise, I'd be, you know, a complete and utter hermit and recluse. Are you wearing your fingerless gloves? I am. And I'm also wearing my dressing gown over all my clothes. <laughs> And my boots. I'm sitting here in my in my favourite Blundstone boots. Um, oh my goodness! I know. I'm I'm a picture. I, I want you all to you get think about how gorgeous I am. Can't well, you no, get? Why would I want to wear a parker inside? Because that keeps you warm. But I've got my dressing gown on, and it's like wearing a blanket. At least I've given up the slanket. Remember my days of oh, the slanket? Oh, my goodness. I know. You loved my slanket. Oh. I have to say I miss my slanket a little bit just because it was such a, you know, an embarrassing thing to have. Where did the slanket go? <laughs> oh, it's still there. The oh, boys okay. just the boys wrap themselves up in it when they watch telly. It's still around. I just don't tend to wear it myself. I decided the Obi-Wan Kenobi look was no longer yeah. fitting. Yeah, no good. Anyway, well, what about I, you? How are you? I embraced heating a long time ago and <laughs> I am just resigned myself to the fact that I'm going to have a very large heating bill because I am very scared of the cold. So there are heaters everywhere in this house, everywhere, and um, they're always on. Not all at the same time, but they're always, there's always a heater on. Are they electric heaters or gas? There's electric, there's gas, there's fake wood. <laughs> oh, you've got it all going on. <laughs> yes, there's a whole variety. Mm. Anyway, but this episode isn't about heating, is it? I know. <laughs> this, and, you know the thing that makes me laugh is that anyone outside of Australia, it would be, you know, it's 12 degrees today. We need to make that clear. Yeah. So it's not like it's minus four. It's not snowing. We're no. so Australian. It's ridiculous. Like as soon as it gets time to be cold, we're all like, oh, what? It's winter. It came again. What happened? <laughs> I know. Well, I read this fantastic post on, I can't even remember where, it was like, Australians taken by surprise by winter for the 114th year in a row. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's so true. Every year. Anyway, yeah. let's talk about writing, Valerie. That's what we're here for. Yes. And in fact, let's start off with a shout out to Natalie Green. So Natalie Green has left us a review on iTunes and Natalie has said, congratulations on the podcast. I may be late to the party, but I've been listening to it for around a year now as a writer who spends most days working alone, which I love just quietly. 
The podcast makes me feel like I'm part of a community as well as giving me valuable tips and immeasurable servings of motivation. I've worked as a copywriter and content strategist for over 20 years now, but there is always something to learn. And through listening to all the authors you have interviewed, not only have I felt encouraged to complete my second book, but I've been able to figure out the type of book it should be. Wow, I'm clapping. Oh, well done. I am too. That's yeah, a, well That's done. actually one of the most difficult things to do is to work mm. out you know, what it should be, how it should go. Fantastic, Natalie. Mm. Thank you so much for that. And if any of you have, uh, if you enjoy the podcast and you have 30 seconds to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. So thank you so much to Natalie and everyone else who has left um, reviews. Let's move on to the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week, shall we? Oh, let's. <laughs> Where did you go, Al? I'm stuck back in heating somewhere, I think. <laughs> I'm switching gears now, people. It's okay. I'm with you. I'm back. This is a post that was actually from Business Insider, and it's called How the Queen of the Beach Novel Became a Best-Selling Author After Her First Four Books Flopped. Now, I think flopped is probably a bit harsh of a description, but basically this is about a novel called Ellen Hildebrand who has 17 books and uh, they're all set uh, on her home island of Nantucket off the coast of Massachusetts. So she's an American author. But I thought what was interesting about this post is that she, uh, you know, has published 17 books now, but she wasn't an overnight success and her first four books only, you know, didn't do very well at all. But the main point is that she persisted. And she says, everyone thinks that when you get a book published, everyone is going to read it. Mm. But the first thing you learn is that getting a book published is one thing and selling a book is another. And she goes on to talk about the fact that she, you know, started off with those four books, but it took that, you know, um, uh, staying power to to get to the stage where she finally had the one that hit the mark and of course the other four books now have sold better retrospectively because people have discovered her mm. but some but it's a great lesson in that after your first one if it doesn't go it doesn't take the world by storm and sell as many copies you know, as 50 shades of gray it doesn't mean that you should give up it's a long-term commitment to be. Do you know what I think is really interesting about this story, though, as well? All of these books have been traditionally published, and so she sold four books that you would think, you know, that, that didn't do as well as, you know, she'd hoped, obviously, yes. um, and still managed to sell a fifth book into Little Brown Shet, who then turned all the other books after that into hits. So it kind of goes against that sort of thing, too, of, like, everybody's always telling you that if your first book doesn't sell well, you know, it's going to be harder and harder and harder to get other books published. But she seems to have managed to, to, you know, persist with that and manage to get through, you know, break through with her fifth novel. Yes, she obviously had a good relationship with her publishers or agent. She had a great, she's obviously had a great, great relationship with her agent. Yeah, I think so too. It's a, it's a really interesting story. And as you say, the fact that her fifth book has broken through and, all the other, the backlist has then sold really well. I think yes. is is another really interesting piece of and, the of the puzzle. 
And I think there's also an unsaid thing here in that if you've got two authors of similar quality, and they're both good, uh, but they're in a situation like Ellen Heldebrand, I think also your relationship with your agent and or publisher, if you're an easy author as opposed to a high-maintenance one, that's really going to impact in their decision whether they're going to give, you know, try with that second or third or fourth book. Because if you're a really high-maintenance author who refuses to do changes, who doesn't you know, who's really precious about their work, you, you, which sometimes is justifiable, but sometimes it's just high maintenance. Ah. You know? This is really interesting, though, too. Like, there's a question that's asked in this interview, what's it like trying to convince someone to let you write a new book when your previous work totally bombed? Mm. Which I think is, I'm so glad that the interviewer asked that question. And she says that The Beach Club, which was her first novel, sold about 16,000 copies, um, which is okay for a first novel in the US. Um, And they gave her the contract then for the next two books. So those first three books were with the same publisher. The fourth one she's then had to sell elsewhere and the fifth one went to a completely different publisher again. And how's this? She got a half-million-dollar advance for that fifth novel. Wow. <laughs> it also that's what, that's what I'm thinking, you know. Wow. Also goes to show that you do improve. Absolutely. Because obviously it was a better novel. But she's also, you know, the thing is she's taken it into her own hands as well because she said, you know, that she wanted she she was pushing them the whole time for ads, tours, better covers, you know, like she's obviously not been backward in coming forward yeah. about what she wanted as an author. It's quite. An, it's a really interesting read, actually. Definitely worth a read. That story. We'll put the link in the show notes, which of course you can find at so you want to be a writer dot Let's move on to our next link of the week, and it's just a. An, it's a clever one in um, the Huffington Post, and I the the headline captured my attention because the headline is "Afraid to Listen to My Own Audiobook." <laughs> <laughs> because it's by Stephanie Story, who is a writer and author, and she said that last week the Audible.com version of my debut novel, Oil and Marble, came out. Yay, celebrate, post on social media, spread the word. And um, where she says, when I got the Audible link, I immediately hit play audio sample. Narrator P.J. Ocklin was reading a Leonardo chapter, the one where he's hunting for Lisa in the market but can't find her. I almost threw up. I shut it off. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I wouldn't listen to it. <gasps> have you listened to your audiobook? I don't have an audiobook yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wish I did have an audiobook, but I don't. But even if I did have one, no, I wouldn't listen to it. I know because my book is on Audible and I have not listened to it either because I don't know. I'm just scared, I think. Well, I think it's that. I, I mean, do you read your books after they're published? Well, I suppose not. Am I, I, look, I look stuff up. I look stuff up. That's what I, I do too. I look stuff up. I never actually. I never actually sit down with them and read them. <laughs> and it's it's kind of interesting because every once in a while I am looking stuff up and I find bits and pieces and I think, well, where did that come from? Yay! <laughs> Don't you? You go, did I write that? Did I write that? <laughs> I know. I know. It's quite funny. It's um, weird. But, yeah, I think I would struggle to listen mm. to my own audiobook. I think it would be weird also because, well, the reason I'm scared is because, um, you know, when I went through a phase where I listened to a lot of audiobooks just because, I don't know why actually, I think I was doing a lot of commuting or driving at the time. And there are some audiobooks where the the narrator, it's, it's, it's just a pleasure to listen to. Mm. But 
other books where the voice is so bad you actually want to cry. And I remember once when I had to drive from Sydney to Melbourne. That's a very long way. That is a long way. And if people don't know, it takes 10 hours. Some people can do it in nine. I do it in 10 because I often had four or five animals in the car. So you have to do a lot of whiz stops. Anyway, <laughs> possibly too much information. I, I, I think you're probably going down the too much information road. <laughs> yes. But anyway, for some reason I was not, because I had to, you know, organise five animals probably and pack, I did not organise my music. Oh. The only thing I had on the entire 10-hour drive was one single audiobook. Mm. and I will never forget it because that was my only option. And I thought, that's great. Look, this audiobook, it goes for about 10 hours. That's perfect timing. That will keep me company the whole way. Oh, my God, the voice was so bad in this, oh, no. in this audiobook that um, – and it's, it, it just sent me to sleep. And <gasps> it, it, it's just the worst possible choice I could have made. Oh. I'll never forget it. Um, but anyway, I won't mention the name of the book in case no, the narrator. Let's not go there. Yes. It does make you wonder though, doesn't it? Because obviously like that's been commissioned and mm. it's been, you know, done and it's been checked and it's been listened to and nobody has thought well, that voice is putting me to sleep. Yeah, yeah. It's quite a personal thing, isn't it? Interestingly, I met or maybe emailed, no, I met the author, she was a Canadian author, sometime later, and I mentioned you know, in sort of a really awesome. subtle way about oh, the voice. <laughs> is this vowel subtle or actual subtle, just out of interest? Because, you well. know, vowel subtle can be like sledgehammer over the head. So just just putting that out there. I can't remember, but she agreed. And she said she really didn't like the voice either. Oh, that's disappointing. Mm. That's really disappointing. Mm. Well, she'd obviously listened to her own book, though, so she gets points for that. Yes, points for that. Right, moving on. Speaking of points. Speaking of points, well, sort of. (laughs) Points, (laughs) I guess. That's a good segue there, Al. Uh, (laughs) I'm doing my best here. (laughs) This is actually some news from Canada um, because it's from CTV News in Canada. And it's talking about the fact that cursive writing is no longer a mandatory part of Ontario's education curriculum. Mm. And it's, it falls under a topic called publishing. And uh, so handwriting is under the umbrella of publishing. And that's the idea that students should know a range of appropriate elements of layout and design and handwriting, <laughs> oddly. Which I think is kind of bizarre. So in um, in their education system, about 40% of principals reported that cursive writing was being formally taught in their schools, which obviously implies that 60, in 60% it isn't, which I think is just bizarre. Don't Why? you? No. You don't? Is that what happens in Australia too? And I don't I'm know. Missing, no, I? no, no, no. I don't think you are because I'm pretty sure my boys are. I think they got. I think Mr. Nine's got his pen license. <laughs> Just don't. Let's not <laughs> even talk cute. about the pen license. Mr. Nine's got his pen license, and I think once you get your pen license, you can do cursive or I don't know. Some, there's some theory. Anyway, they're doing cursive. But I've got to say, Val, I, I honestly feel like most people never use cursive anymore. I can. I mean, if if I handwrite, which you know, as we've discussed, my handwriting is not brilliant. I do. I print. Really? Even though, even though I am ancient, I print. Yes, I do. Why? And kids do. 
Why do because, you think? Because I can't read my cursive. I mean, my cursive is even worse than my printing. At least if I print it, I've got a chance of knowing what I wrote. Right. So I don't know if it's just a me thing. I don't know. Maybe our listeners can tell us. Are you guys using cursive? Because I don't actually know too many people who are except my mum and dad. Wow, I use cursive. Oh, there you go. <laughs> All the time. Do you? Yeah. To who? For what? Sometimes I just do it for fun even. Like last for night fun. I sat in front of the television and I wrote it the lyrics. I was watching some show on television, um, but uh, I was just writing out the lyrics to Hamilton, <laughs> the musical. <laughs> oh, can, we in just not, can we just not even go there? This is what you're doing for fun. <laughs> Let's move on to the word of the week. And can we have a tax tip as well, please? (laughs) I was writing it in pretty colours. Okay. Yeah, see, I've never in my life sat down and written out lyrics in cursive for fun, not even in pretty colours. And, of course, and especially not of a musical. Like, you just, you've really just hit, it's just like wham right there. All right, I think I should just Valerie is the coolest kid ever, just quietly. Yeah. Can we move on? <laughs> Let's move on. Oh, no. All right. We'll move on to our giveaway for this week. Okay. This week, it's an yeah, awesome giveaway. Um, and uh, it, you get to – now, remember, we spoke about Charlotte Wood's The Natural Way of Things. We did. Yes. Well, this is associated with that too because this week we have a giveaway thanks to Dendi Direct. And Dendi Direct, owned by Dendi Cinemas, is an Australian on-demand new movie and TV service. Oh, I love on-demand movies and TV. Idea. Yes. So we have five Dendi Direct vouchers to give away as well as five copies of The Natural Way of Things by Charlotte Wood. So entries close Monday, 4th of July, and you have to go to writerscentre.com.au slash win in order to enter. So writerscentre.com.au slash win. And tr- you could get some vouchers to win this brand-new Australian on-demand movie and TV service from Dendi Direct. So could we infer from that that they're doing the movie version of her because the film, I know that the, the film uh, TV rights have been optioned. Can we infer that it's them? I'm not sure. I don't want to start spreading any rumours. We will find out. Let's find out. What an interesting idea. Yes. Loved. Okay, sorry. And you go to, where are we going, Val, to win? writercentercomau slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd love to create your own picture book, a popular five-week course in writing picture books will show you how. In less than a few hours a week, you'll discover what you need to know about point of view in a picture book, structure and pace, as well as language and rhythm, finding the right voice, working with illustrators, publishing options and much more. Complete it online for ultimate convenience and receive personalised tutor feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash picturebooks. All right, our word of the week this week. (laughs) Are you ready? I'm so ready for this because I know what it is and I think it ties in so beautifully with many of the things that we've been talking about. (laughs) It 
does. <laughs> well, you may recall that um, uh, that audiobook that I listened to on the way to Sydney to Melbourne made me go to sleep. And that is because the voice on that was soporific. Uh... That's the word of the week, soporific, S-O-P-O-R-I-F-I-C, soporific. And according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it means causing to tend or tending to cause sleep. So you might say that someone's voice is soporific or a particularly boring television show is soporific. Or for me, listening to my cat purr late at night while he's cuddling me is certainly soporific as well. Mm. So there you go, soporific. It's a great word. Yeah. I, I have to say I'm quite happy with this word of the week and I think that it should tie in beautifully to some blog posts out there from some of the um, some of the people playing Valerie's Word of the Week game. Yes. If, you, you, if you're playing the Word of the Week game, put the Word of the Week in one of your blog posts and certainly let us know. We'd love to read it. And please don't use it in conjunction with our podcast because <laughs> that would make me very, very sad. Yes. Let's move on to our writer-in-residence this week. Who have we got? Oh, this week we've got a really interesting one. We are talking to Shane W. Smith, and he is a graphic novelist. Now, graphic novels are something that I find particularly interesting, and I think it's because my boys are so obsessed with them. Um, They really, really like them. They like to, you know, to create them and read them and do all manner of things with them. Um, So I thought, well, I'm quite interested in the way that the words and the pictures relate to each other it's you know because as we've discussed um in the past I'm not particularly visual when it comes to um you know my brain is is, is not particularly visual so I, I find it fascinating that people can um put those two things together in such a great way now Shane um doesn't do uh graphic novels for kids he writes graphic no- novels for adults they're really interesting work and the other thing I find fascinating about him is he works full-time and he has a family young family of four um, kids and he we, we talk a little bit about how he manages to fit this stuff in but he's written I think it's seven or eight graphic novels um and I think it's you know given how time consuming they are mm. I think that the you know the fact that he manages to do all of the things that he does and get these things out is fantastic so um here's Shane and it's a really interesting interview Shane W. Smith is the author of seven full-length graphic novels and many shorter pieces. His work has been shortlisted for the Aurealis Awards twice and was most recently an Australian Shadows finalist. Shane's latest graphic novels, Undad and Undad Volume 2, are the story of a normal family man who suddenly finds himself undead. So your basic zombie dad. Um, All right, so welcome to the program, Shane. Hi, Alison. Thanks for having me on. All right, so let's start with some basics for our listeners who may not be uh, completely familiar with the graphic novel as a as a genre, so to speak. How does it differ from a comic? Is there a difference? Um, not to my mind. I, I use the words interchangeably, but okay. it's it's not something that has an official definition. There's a there's been considerable debate between pedants in the in the form over many decades. Right. And no one's come up with any basic, with any real conclusion as to the major difference? No. No. <laughs> Don't you love that? Oh. You can debate it for decades and we're still back where we started from. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. All right. So have you always written graphic novels? I haven't. I, uh, um, I cut my teeth in prose fiction. I've been writing prose pretty much all my life. And I only started dabbling in comics about 10 years ago. Okay. And why, why did you start? Why did you, why choose this form? 
Um, it's kind of funny how these things happen. It's never really any single factor, more of a, a strange confluence of events. So I wasn't a lifelong fan of comics. I grew up on prose novels, and I think they're probably still my first love. And by the time I was in university studying creative writing, I'd already written two novels, which had quite rightly been rejected for publication many times. Um, I went through a, a bit of a Joss Whedon fanboy stage in the early 2000s that led me to pick up the comic he'd written called Frey, which is the first comic I'd read since I was a little boy. And there was something about the way it flowed and the way it read that made me feel like perhaps this was something I could branch out into. Um, I wanted to give it a go anyway. I'd already sort of dabbled in poetry and children's books and screenplays as part of my degree. So I was definitely well primed to experiment with another form. Do you do, so do um, you do at that the time, art I was just as well? Head, I do, yes. Okay. All right. So have you always done, have you always been an, an, an artist as well as a, as a writer? Uh, um, when I was a kid, I loved to draw, but I, I let that slide for a bit when I started focusing more on the, on the prose novels. But when it came time to pick it up again, it sort of, it came back relatively quickly. Mm. Do you have to go and do a how to draw a graphic novel course or do you just sort of, is it all about creating your own style? Um, I, I didn't do any course. I, I didn't read any books on how to, to draw a graphic novel, but I did read pretty extensively in the form over a period of a few months, I've just read graphic novels and I picked apart why they flowed the way they flowed. And there are a couple of really good non-fiction books that break down some popular graphic novels and really get into the, the meaning of the images and why they work the way they work. So it was sort of a, an intensive self, self-learning period, I suppose. Wow. And were there particular authors that you were drawn to at that point? Like, are there, do you have, you know, favourites? Um, I do have favourites, uh, not really in the what, what you might expect, the, the superhero genre of comics. Mm. That's not really something that interests me, but I consulted with one, of my, with one of my tutors at university who was a big graphic novel fan, and he put me onto a few people like, um, like Alan Moore and Brian K. Vaughan and a couple of uh, more indie people like Joe Sacco, who does sort of comic journalism in war-torn countries. Mm. And so there's a huge range of work out there, and they all approach it a bit differently. So it was a, a good chance to see just how broad and how diverse the form could be and all the different ways it could be used. Hmm. So how does the process work for you? Are you, you know, do you start with words? Do you start with an idea? Do you start with a picture? What do you, how do you go about actually constructing a story? Um, I don't really have a set method. Every project just seems to take on a life of its own. Sometimes I'll start with an elevator pitch and develop some concept art from that, and sometimes I'll have a, a, a full novel that I'll decide to convert to a graphic novel. Oh, okay. So you will have already written the words, and then you'll convert it into the form. That, that, that's happened, yeah. The, um, the Lesser Evil, my first commercial publication, was actually a prose novel for about 10 years before I made the transition. Okay, and do you feel it works better as a graphic novel? Is it something that you like? Do you think that what what uh, what, what do you think? Does it does it lift the the words having the the graphics with it? For that project, it absolutely did. The the, the lesser evil as a novel was a, a bit of a disaster zone. Oh. <laughs> I've rewritten it. 
I, I'd rewritten it so, so many times over many years, and it just wasn't clicking in the right way. And if I'd had any sense of all, I probably would have just shelved it. But I felt like there was something in there that was still sort of worth sticking around for. So I gave it one last chance and decided to see how it would work as a graphic novel script. So do you always do words and pictures yourself, or do you actually work with other people as well? Um, for my first few books, I did it all myself. And that was mainly a, uh, a budget decision because uh, collaborating with other people with a, a project that I would hope to retain creative control over is generally an expensive one because you're looking to hire other people rather than enter into a, a real creative partnership with them. And uh, artists typically command a page rate in excess of fifty pa- $50 a page. Mm-hmm. And when you're working on a, a full-length graphic novel of 350 pages, it's, uh, it's unaffordable for mm-hmm. someone at this stage of my career. So you do you tend to do the pictures yourself, just so that I, you can can, tar, can retain control and you know keep it all together. Uh, that's right. But um, my most recent project, Undad, I actually took a different path. I um, I decided to try out Kickstarter, oh. uh, and I, I put it up on Kickstarter, and I, I raised something like fifteen thousand dollars combined for the two volumes, hmm. and that was enough to pay a team of ten artists to work on the book with me. So if you do it all yourself, how long does it take you to produce a, a full novel? Um, I work in digital art, which is thankfully a lot quicker than using pen and paper. Mm. And I can put out a three, 300 pages in roughly eight or nine months if I'm working hard. Wow. Including images. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so with Undad, with the Kickstarter behind you, were you able to make that an even faster process? Uh, definitely. The, the two books together total about 450 pages, and that all came together in the process, in, the, in about 12 months. Okay. And with Undad, had you, is that one where you had written, you know, that, I mean, obviously if you're working with other people, you have to write the whole thing out. You have to write the whole thing first mm-hmm. and then work back from there, do you? Is that how, how that worked? That's right. So uh, the typical workflow is that the writer puts together a script detailing panel actions and dialogue and then sends it out to the artists for, for, for their contribution. Wow. Okay, so is this an area of publishing a difficult one to break into? Like is it, how did you come to be published in this area in the first place? I think I was lucky. In Australia, there's not really all that many opportunities to be published as a graphic novelist. I think we have one, maybe two publishers that are seeking work from writers, from comic creators. So I, I, um, I was sort of forced to look overseas and I found a small press in Canada called Zeta Comics. And I mean, I'd sent the lesser evil out to dozens of places, but they, they bit, they liked the work. Okay. And so when you submit it, do you send the whole thing or do you just, you know, is it like a novel where you send a query in three chapters or how does that work? I think as with novels, every publisher has its own submission guidelines. Some like to see the whole book and some like to see a sample of about 20 pages. And yeah, I think it's the same. And when you actually got sort of like when they bit and they came back to you and said, yeah, we're going to publish your work, um, were you dancing around the kitchen at this point? Is that a... (laughs) Is this a massive thing for you? That Was that your first one that you had have, ever had published? 
it, it was huge. But um, the the first response wasn't actually one that made me dance. Oh. They uh, they had a look at the sample and they said, "Oh, this is great. We love the writing. But... When's the final artwork going to be done?" Oh. <laughs> and you're like, "Yeah, still working on that." <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, that's not what you want. Yeah, that, to hear that was a bit of a belly drop. Oh. <laughs> All right, so you mentioned that um, there's only a couple of Australian publishers that actually do cover um, graphic novels or are seeking work. Um, is that the biggest challenge about being an Australian graphic novelist, is, is, is just finding outlets for your work? Uh, I think so, yes. Um, though comic creators, I think, are also in a bit of a privileged position over prose writers in that we have avenues like comic conventions to get the work out there and I don't think there are that many events for for non-comic writers that have the same kind of reach okay so I was going to ask you about that because we yep. met at Comic Gong yes and um which is the Wollongong Comic Festival for anyone who's interested and I was trailing around after my children <laughs> looking for people to talk to um so are conferences and fan festivals the best way for you to get your work out there because I imagine distribution is not an easy thing no, distribution in the comics world is, it's a monopoly, actually. There's one distributor that covers the entire world. There's diamond diamond distributors. Um, and unless you can convince them that they can make a profit sending your book to uh, comic stores, you have no option other than approaching each individual store and seeing if they'll stock your book. Wow. So is that what you do? Are you hand-selling to booksellers as well as going to conferences and fan festivals? Or whenever I visit another city for an event like Comic Gong, I'll um I'll try and get to the local store and see if they'll I'll put my book in. But mm-hmm. it's not always easy. So how many sort of conferences and things are you attending each year? Uh, it varies from year to year, depending on whether or not my wife has just given birth to another child. Actually, because <laughs> so, you have four children, don't you? As four well, children to yes. add to the mix of this, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, <laughs> Do you, do you do a lot of, um, is online platform building, is that a good place for, for a graphic novelist to kind of get their work out there? Um, it, it's hard to say. I do have a, a fairly active Facebook page and Twitter feed and people respond to my posts and content, but I'm, I can't say how well that leads to direct sales. No. I, think, I think most... The, huge majority of my sales are face-to-face at conventions and events. Okay, so it's definitely worth the effort to attend. Oh, for sure. Okay, all right. So are you still doing other things? I know you did the creative writing degree at the University of Canberra. Are you still writing, you know, straight prose novels and things as well, or have you really decided that this is going to be your thing for the time being? Um, I'm still still keeping my toes wet in prose. Um, In 2012, just after my son was born, I spent eight months on the commute to and from work writing out a novel by hand. Mm. And that was, was a, that was an interesting experience. And it was very did, rewarding. Was it? I was going to ask you about that because we were discussing in a recent podcast the the difference between writing longhand and typing and, and how it sort of taps into a different part of your brain. Did you did you find that, that that's what happened with you when you were, because you were writing longhand? Absolutely. I, I the creative process felt completely different writing by longhand. Hmm. Interesting. Valerie keeps telling me I should try it, and I keep <laughs> saying that I can't read my handwriting, so there'd be no point. Um, okay, so... There are plenty of drawbacks. Sorry? There are plenty of drawbacks to that approach. Yeah. <laughs> you end up having to, 
to type out the whole thing after you've written it oh, yeah. by hand. And there's not much. I, I just think there's not enough sort of options for deleting and adding things in at the top and that sort of stuff. I think I would find it hard. Yeah, no, I think get quite messy. <laughs> so, okay, what does a typical writing day look like for you? Because I believe you have a, a full-time job. Yep, I've got a full-time job. So my typical day involves getting up at about six and heading straight off to work. Wow. I work until about four, come home, help my wife with the dinner and getting the kids to bed. And then I spend time with with my wife until she goes to bed. And then I stay up a few extra hours and that's my writing time. Okay, so you, you're kind of having a fairly long and busy day and you're writing in the middle of the night. That's right. Okay, which is – and so do you find that – I mean, is that – is that now just your routine or do you find that like sandwiching your writing around family and work very difficult? It was difficult to get into the routine, but once I've got it and committed to it, it I mean, it's something I have to do. I can't imagine life without writing, so you do what you have to do, really. And are you doing that every day or is it like five days a week or how do you sort of, you know, is, is, it, is it writing something that you manage to fit in at some point every single day? Yeah, I write every day, barring a, an emergency room trip for one of the kids. There are no exceptions, no excuses. Wow, okay, because that is a serious routine. Like, I think a lot of people would find that um, incredibly difficult to get started. But as you say, once you once you make the habit, then it's hard to break the habit, isn't it? That's right, and if it matters, you, you'll find time for it, I think. It, do, you, do you switch? You find out just how much it really is. Do you switch between words and pictures to kind of give, you know, depending on the day as far as, or, or do you work on a panel at a time or how do you, how do you construct that? I'm just wondering if you, um, you know, if you're not really into it that day, do you do one or the other or how does, it, how does that work for you? I've usually got five or six creative projects on the go at a time ah. because if I'm bored with one, I can work on another. Okay, so you don't get writer's block because you're doing lots of different things. Yeah. Do you fit exercise and, you know, all that sort of stuff in at any point? Ah, uh, no, that much. sort of fell by the wayside a few years ago. <laughs> you have to look after your health, Shane, okay? <laughs> I've started eating better. I'm dropping weight. So Excellent. I'm on the right path now, I think. Do you network with other graphic novelists, like in the sense of, are you, is there like a, is there, a, is it a relatively small community that you see at the same, um, you know, at the conferences all the time, the same sort of faces? Very much so. Um there are a few dozen of us, but I think by now we all all pretty much know each other because we, we talk to each other at these uh, conventions and usually go out for a beer afterwards and that sort of thing. Is it a supportive community? Like are you supporting each other's work or is it kind of every man for himself? Um, I was expecting it to be sort of more siloed than it is. I think by and large everyone is incredibly supportive of each other. We, there are Facebook groups where we all talk techniques and marketing and distribution and we're banding together at the moment to work out some sort of wholesale options oh, that's for great. distributing to stores. Yeah. And how important, I mean, how important is it for you to feel like there are other people, you know, in the same boat that you're in? Um, not very. Really? I, I, no, I kind of feel like... This uh, writing is something I've always wanted to do uh, and what other people are getting up to. I mean, I love supporting them. I love liaising with them and I'll help them out if I can and they'll help me out. But it doesn't feel like a priority. To no, it's more of your focus is on your work and your writing. 
Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Well, I guess you don't have much time, so you've got to prioritise, don't you? (laughs) All right, so let's finish up um, our conversation today with our three top tips for aspiring graphic novelists. What have you got for me? Um, The first one would be be prepared not to make any money ever. (laughs) Okay. This is a labour of love, is it? It is. It has to be. Okay. If you don't love it, you should to do anything else, really. Okay. All right. Um, so no money. Great. No money. Good start. Okay. <laughs> Next. Um, don't publish your first work. There's uh, a huge a huge percentage of people who work in comics, I think, seem to feel like just because you've invested a certain amount of time in a project and you've, you've put, the, put it all together that that automatically makes it publishable. Uh, and because, I mean, I think we're starting to see this in prose as well, but because the publishing options in Australia are so limited, everyone is self-publishing. Right. Which means there isn't so much gatekeeping happening. Is it an expensive thing to do to self-publish, though, is it with, with a graphic novel, like more so than a, um, than a prose novel, so to speak? Um, well, I think you've got the same options with comics as you do with prose. You can order 500 copies and keep them in the garage. Yeah. Or you can go through a print-on-demand service. Oh, of course, yeah. Okay. All right. And your third tip? Work hard all the time, every day. Practice, practice, practice on your skills. Never give up. So that's a sort of have determination guess. Okay. Even though there would never be any money for you. <laughs> It's such a – you've given me such a positive outlook there. <laughs> I mean, if you love it, it won't feel like work. All right. Well, thank you so much, Shane, for your um, for your time today. It's been a very interesting look. I think graphic novels are an area that not very many people know an awful lot about, and I think there's that notion of, um, you know, who does this stuff. Um, the other thing I find quite interesting is that so many – like, you know, as you say, you feel they're quite interchangeable with comics in some ways – um, but so many of them are very adult, aren't they? Like the is the big market is adults for this kind of thing. Is that correct? I'd say yeah. Um, the market has definitely shifted in the last couple of decades into darker, grittier work, and we can see that bleeding over into the movies, which have been hugely profitable for mm. for the comic companies. Mm. And I think that's it's obviously bled back into the books now. So the people who see the movies, the gritty dark, violent movies now want to read gritty, dark, violent comics. And so your characters typically aimed at, well, traditionally aimed at children like Superman are now really dark and quite adult. It's so true. Now that you have four children of your own, can you see yourself ever doing um, graphic novels for kids? I'd love to. It's uh, sort of... Somewhere on my to-do list, and so I do we... intend to do it at some at some stage. Okay, just add that on to your many thousand things that you need to do. All right, well, yes. we'll let you, let you get back to your many thousand things you need to do, and um, we thank you once again for your time, and good luck with everything, and good luck with Undad volumes one and two. And is there? Do you have any new work coming out in the next little while at all? I'm currently editing a science fiction anthology of prose and comics called All the King's Men. So we're tentatively, yeah, we're tentatively expecting that book to come out by the end of the year. 
Excellent. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out for it. And we will, of course, put uh, Shane's website address, etc., in the show notes, but you can find out more about him at shanewsmith.com. Wow, that guy has dedication, huh? Well, you know, passion. I passion, think just, you know, commitment, I think it's, discipline, yeah. discipline. 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 He was. I think he was a bit nervous when we were talking because, you know, I'm very intimidating as, a, as an interviewer, <laughs> as you know. Um, but I just think he had such interesting things to say. And I think it's such an interesting area of writing. Like, yeah. if, uh, you know, the two skills are quite different, I think. And I think it's uh, being able to visualise and, and to write, I think, is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to our app pick of the week, shall we? Mm, let's. First of all, I want to um, apologise for giving some people a bum steer with some of last week's Gmail shortcuts because I had said it was <laughs> Command E and or Control E to archive things, and it's simply pressing E if oh, you want to archive hello. while you're in the email, or simply pressing R and it will reply. And if you want to reply all, it's simply pressing A as in reply all. Mm. So there was no need for a control or a command, just in case anyone was trying them out. I'm sure you all were. Oh, yes. I, I went straight to my keyboard. <laughs> now, uh, depending on when you listen to this particular episode, either the end of the financial year will be right upon you or it will have just passed. Mm. And either way, this is certainly relevant. And big shout out to Jenny for actually sending us this particular app because obviously I am not the only person interested in tax (laughs) who listens to this podcast. We're all fascinated. So thank you, Jenny, for highlighting the Australian Tax Office. Well, it's actually officially called the Australian Taxation Office app by the Australian Taxation Office. See, the, the, it's the catchiness that gets you, yes. the creativity that just knocks you over right there. <laughs> exactly. Now, I have not actually used this app yet, but I have previously used, uh, you know, before apps were around, uh, the kind of software that's provided free by the Australian Taxation Office, and I have found it, I, I used it for, you know, five years or something, so it was certainly useful for a, a period of time until my needs outgrew it. And this particular app is... Um, it's designed for iPhone and iPad, but I believe it would also be in you know, Android as well. You'll have to check. You'd think um, so. Yeah, yeah, they you'd, wouldn't be. You'd think so. Yeah. And it has lots of features, the ability to capture and classify work-related expenses, gifts or donations. Very, very handy. You can enroll your voice print with the ATO, and then you can use this to verify your identity when you call. There's also a tax withheld calculator. Um, You can search for Australian business numbers as well, watch videos, access checklists, and this is all free. So, you know, if you are, since you're about to start a new financial year, why not start a new financial year with, um, with a good setup? So whether you use this app or not is, is, is up to you, but uh, thank you to Jenny for highlighting it to us. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks, Jenny. Now, let's move on to a question from Teo, 
who uh, asked a question in the Facebook group and I thought I would um, bring it over here into the podcast because it would be relevant to people. She has said that we mentioned Livescribe in one of our previous uh, podcasts, which I know we did. We've also mentioned it in some of our courses. Now, Livescribe, for those people who don't know, is a pen that you write on this special paper and like, you know, like a moleskin kind of book and the pen has a recording device in the pen so you can record for example interviews that you're doing with somebody or you can record a lecture but as you're taking notes but when you come back to your notes you can just point to that particular point in your handwriting and it will play back the audio at that time or Mm. I mean that's just one of the functions it's pretty clever really isn't it very clever and it can obviously you can then uh, import the mp3 onto your computer so Teo has asked uh, how you're still finding it would you still recommend it for transcriptions and storing notes and you run out of the paper quickly Um, and is the is it reusable or erasable well no the paper is not erasable and in general, does she, Teo also asks, does anyone use Microsoft Surface Pro and find it useful for transcription or translating handwritten notes to type in any way? I don't, she says she doesn't own a Pro, but the marketing is very strong. Hmm. <laughs> well, I thought I would highlight this question because I have used a live, live scribe and as of the last two months, I have been using a Microsoft Surface. So... In case anyone is interested, uh, I have found the Microsoft Surface combined with OneNote. That's a very important thing here. Combined with OneNote, which is an app that comes, mm-hmm. you know, with Microsoft Surface, uh, to be a game changer. Because one of the things that you can do is you can turn your Surface essentially into a, a notebook, like a notepad, because mm-hmm. you have a stylus and it's just like writing on paper. And that's why, that's what I was doing my cursive writing when I was writing out the lyrics of Hamilton last night. Well, you just practice. (laughs) So you can turn it essentially into a notebook. It's like writing on paper. But what you can do with OneNote is that you can press record. So when you press record, let's say I'm interviewing interviewing you, Al. Mm -hmm. I can press record. I I can make my notes along the way, and it records our interview. But also, it will. I can always go back to any point on my notes and play that particular point of the audio. Right. So similar with the live scribe thing, but similar, yes. Right. Okay. But it's but. With the live scribe, you are writing it onto, you know, this special paper. Paper. And you, you need to, you know, import it onto your computer. This yeah. way it's straight into, straight into computer. the computer. Okay. And what the one what the one note can also do is convert your handwriting into text. Oh. Yes. Mm. I don't use that function very often because I don't need to. Like that's just not the way I use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it can convert your writing into text. And it can also do things like if you're doing quick calculations, you can just write like the numbers, like mm. 326 divided by 24, and it will come up mm. with the solution. So you're, you're a yes. You're saying as long as you use it with one note um, that it's a, you're, you're quite happy with it. Yes. Well, I use it with Marketing one note. aside. I use it with OneNote, so that's mm. a, it, from a practical level for, as a writer, if I'm interviewing people or, or often it's I might use it, say, when I'm in a seminar situation or a conference situation and I need to get quotes down that the person is saying, mm. it's certainly useful, very useful for that. Cool. There you go. 
there's Excellent. the working writer's tip for this week. Gosh. Let's move on to our platform building tip this week. Ah, well, again, this is uh, coming out of a Facebook group. So our Facebook groups are so incredibly useful. I do love them. Mm. Um, this was posted. I've got a link here from the Creative Pen. Uh, so Joanna Penn, we've actually interviewed Joanna uh, many, many, many moons ago. She is a very, very entrepreneurial um non-fiction and fiction author yes. who has a terrific blog uh, which has just got so many resources in it, particularly for people who want to self-publish. Um, fantastic marketing stuff, really, really good resource. So if you're in, um, I really recommend you have a look at it, thecreativepen.com. Anyway, she was talking uh, in this post, it's about six months old, but it was shared into our Facebook group uh, this week by Alastair Dawes. Hello, Alastair. Hi, Alastair. Um, so it's called seven mistakes you're making with your author blog and how to fix them. Um, now the blogging thing is always something that comes up regularly with people who are building their platform. Do I have to blog? How do I blog? What do I blog about? There's a lot of blog, blog, blog stuff. This is a very, very good little overview post of, um, you may have already started your author blog and these are probably mistakes that you are making um, because everybody does when they start out. Yes. And the beautiful thing about Joanna is that she does like to try to stop you from making mistakes <laughs> that she has made <laughs> and that we have all made. And I in particular have been very much in the past guilty of the first mistake, which is using terrible headlines, which means ah. people won't click or open or read further. And the reason I think that I made this mistake particularly early on was because I was used to writing for magazines and sub-editing and editing magazines. Yes. And with magazines, you have to write, you write clever headlines, yes. you write clever cover lines. You're trying to kind of make the story as as interesting and exciting and, and creative as possible on the page as much as anything else. Yes. Um, so I was making that mistake. I was, I was using cute, funny, punny sort of, you know, headlines. Mm. And, of course, nobody knew what the article was about yes. when I shared it on Twitter or I shared it on Facebook. And so they weren't clicking. With a blog headline, you kind of need to be pretty straightforward. Yep. You have to think about what, you know, you have to think about what, who you want to read this thing and what it is that they're going to get out of this particular article, even if it's, a you know, about, I don't know, you know, I don't know, Procrasti Pup. <laughs> but it, you've got to think about who, who do you want, who's going to want to read this article about Procrasti Pup and what are they going to want to see about Procrasti Pup when I'm actually yes. writing this headline. So that's a mistake that I think everybody makes when they first start out. They try to be cute and clever. Don't be cute and clever. Be clever, but be straightforward so people know essentially what it is that they're clicking through to because people hate clickbait. They yep. want to click on a link knowing that when they get to the article, it's pretty much going to be what you told them it's going to be. Yes. Um, I think that that's important. The other thing I think a lot of authors make, a uh, mistake a lot of authors make, and again, totally guilty of this when I first started out, I didn't use enough images. Oh, and the images yes. that I did use were not good they weren't <laughs> right you know what I mean I was using at that stage a lot of you know bits and pieces that I found all over the place I wasn't necessarily taking my own um and at that stage Pinterest because you know I've been blogging for a long time um Pinterest wasn't really a thing but then Pinterest came through and I didn't adjust my images accordingly um Pinterest 
I saw someone complaining the other day in a, online somewhere on Facebook that Pinterest wasn't really working for them because, you know, their most popular pin was something, you know, was a, was a pin of a teddy bear or something that had nothing <laughs> to do with their blog. If you put the right images on Pinterest, um, and again, it's about telling people what the article's about in yeah. the image, yep. then Pinterest is a fantastic source of bringing new eyes to your blog. Um, you know, people that you may not necessarily have in your networks in other places will find you on Pinterest via your images. And I think that that's something that a lot of authors, it's a, it's a, it's a step that a lot of authors overlook. And I, I find it so frustrating because I pin a lot of stuff for the Writers' Centre and for my own sites and things like that. And um, I go to pin an article that I think is really interesting and there's no image for me to pin. Mm. And I can't put it up without it, you know. And so I think I've, it's something that I think authors should think about um, when they're putting their blog together. Yeah, definitely. And what I think do you that, think? Yeah, I think one of the ones that some authors are guilty of, and it's listed here as mistake number four, is not using enough white space. Mm. And I find that there are some, especially it's like a rookie mistake where every single spot on the on the web page is taken up. Whereas that white space is really important for, for, for just breathing space for the reader. So you don't have to squash everything up all, you know, really close together. Some people have a natural eye and know that that is, know yeah. that they need that. But other people have a tendency to be a little bit too text heavy. And you can mm. get over that by A, some nice images or mm. appropriate images, or B, just creating white space, just creating Shorter paragraphs. Room. Yeah, shorter paragraphs. Shorter paragraphs. Absolutely. Like every time, yeah. And so for this and other great platform building tips, check out Alison's course, How to Build Your Author Platform, which is proving very popular and, the, and has a very, very active Facebook group of all of the people who are doing or have completed the course or supporting each other as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, to find out more about that, go to writerscentercomau slash platform. All right, so that brings us almost to the end of this week's episode, Al. What are you doing in the coming week? Uh, well, I am writing. And it's interesting because um, the writer book with Al hashtag mm. uh, continues apace and it's been <laughs> great. And I, I've had such great feedback on it because people are saying, you know, that I because I post my word counts each day and, yes. you know, sometimes they're not stellar. Like over the weekend I managed two naught days because I was um, – moving furniture let's not even talk about that um I know and other things that we were doing so but you know everybody has days that are zero um and everybody has days that are 2,000 word days and I think but what people have been saying is that you know by showing by posting every day what's going on um it's motivating them to 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 go with me to write their you know to to add words to their manuscript and stuff so um it's still an ongoing thing so if you still want to join in uh write a book with Al is the hashtag um most of the action happens on my Facebook page so find me at uh Alison Tate writer on Facebook and and join us you know it's it's just if you're looking for some motivation to get some words down it's a great little community that's come together around it and I think that you would probably find it really valuable so So I have a question are you going to continue hashtag write a book with Al until you finish writing yes until I finish my writing my book really well, I am because my plan, well, you know, my plan was when I started, it usually takes me about six weeks to, you know, I'm writing middle grade. So I'm aiming for about 55,000 words. Usually it takes me around about the six week mark to, to get to that. 
Um, so we're at the, where are we at? Probably three weeks in, are we? Three, I think we're about three. Well, we started on the 1st of June. So, yeah. you know, however, well, actually we're nearly four weeks in. Yeah, so no, you're almost done. You're almost at yeah, the end so, of the month. Well, I've got, when we say almost done, I think my word count at the moment is around about the 25,000 word mark. Mm-hmm. So I'm probably a little bit behind where I would have liked to have been simply because the school holidays are looming, um, which always makes it harder. But, yeah, that, so that's where I'm at at the moment. Um, so we may be looking at more like an eight-week period um, right. this time around. Exciting. But, yeah, so maybe another four weeks. So please join us. It's very, very fun time. All right, wonderful. Write a book with Al. What a great <laughs> idea. Hashtag. Hashtag, yes. Well, I am not um, writing a book this week. No. Okay, fair enough. What, what am doing? I doing this week? I've got a bunch of things going on. I'm going to be hanging out, hanging out with the people at Newsmodo to find out more about their plans, which uh, many people may know that Newsmodo is kind of like um, – Uh, a content agency so I'm going to be finding out more about the world of content writing and content marketing this week Uh, I'm also we have an interview with news with um we do with Raquel yes we have an interview a very popular interview with Newsmodo so check that out it's in a previous episode as well to see what's happening in 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 the world of content writing Um, I'm also teaching doing some corporate training about uh, storytelling and feature writing within the corporate environment. So ah, that's something a little bit different. Yeah. Yes. And um, no doubt probably doing a bit more cursive writing while watching <laughs> television. Let's not even talk about that. <laughs> Let's find you another musical to transcribe, yeah. shall we? <laughs> okay. All right. Um, where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontate.com. Oh, and keep an eye out there. There's going to be some big changes at alisontate.com sometime Exciting. in the next few weeks when I get organised. Um, and then you'll find me on Twitter at, at altate, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at alisontatewriter. And you'll find me at Valerie Koo on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Valerie Koo on Facebook and you'll find me. And I'm the Valerie Koo on Snapchat. And, of course, you can find out about uh, all of the courses and news at the Writers Centre, writerscentre.com.au. So thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next week. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.